Welcome back to the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. Over the past month, POFA has dropped five fantastic episodes for its 2020 presidential election series. These include progressive foreign policy, Trump foreign policy, Biden foreign policy, election interference, and foreign policy polling. In this episode, the POFA hosts are having a roundtable discussion on our personal thoughts on the series as a whole. This is not your typical POFA episode. We will be discussing in a casual manner as friends and hopefully remain so after the episode. So sit back, relax, and listen to the POFA hosts bicker about their visions for the world. As a disclaimer for the episode, the format of the roundtable makes it difficult for POFA hosts to fully explain their opinions and respond to every matter. If you have thoughts or opinions on the format of the episode or the series as a whole, please feel free to send POFA an email at hopkinspofa at gmail.com. Okay, everyone, I want to start us off on discussing Trump foreign policy. Uh, That's the podcast where we had Dr. Carafano as our guest. So the first point I wanted to address is one of the things that Dr. Carafano said is that people focus too much on what Trump says and not enough on what he does. What are your opinions on that? Uh, That's a great question, Julia. And it's an interesting part of the discussion. Um, I think it's interesting because this isn't really an, a pro-Trump argument for just foreign policy, but it's also a pro-Trump argument for everything that uh, President Trump does um, in terms of domestic policy as well. A lot of people will say, well, Trump says a lot of things, but he doesn't really mean it and he won't do it. Um, and I think both in the case of domestic and foreign policy, when Trump says something, he has every intention to do that thing. And we've seen this happen in foreign policy. Um, so I think the idea that, uh, that, that Trump's rhetoric does not equate into action is, is, is not a reality um, for President Trump. So, and, and so there's that. One is I think Trump's rhetoric is really what he wants to do. And sometimes he's constrained on doing so, but that he intends to do what he says. So that's one part of the division of rhetoric and action. And then the second part of the division of rhetoric and action is Dr. Carafano brought up that Trump's uh, President Trump's rhetoric should be divided from his action in foreign policy because what he says doesn't necessarily affect our relations as much as what he does. And I think that is a flawed argument in my in my personal opinion. Um, and obviously Dr. Carfano is is saying this not out of a any like secret agenda or anything. That's just what he thinks, and which is a valid argument. But I think this is wrong because what Trump says as the president of the United States, as the most important person in the world, has huge effects on how our allies see us how people around the world see us and how our adversaries see us. And then they react based on that. And the number one example is Trump's rhetoric on Russian election interference. In 2018, Trump was at the Helsinki summit. And I remember this vividly because I was sitting um, as an intern at the House Foreign Affairs Committee watching Trump's Helsinki summit. And, And a reporter asked a question and Trump basically says, well, I have no reason to believe that Putin is lying to me. I don't think they hacked the election. And some people would say that's rhetoric, right? That's not rhetoric. That's action. Putin sees that Trump believes him and has said that he believes him. And Putin operates on that assumption because Trump has now said it, right? So Putin is not deterred anymore for interfering in US elections because Trump has outright said that he doesn't think it's happening. So despite the fact that Trump didn't physically do anything to to encourage, uh, he didn't physically do anything to make the Russians more likely to interfere in our elections. He said things that made the Russians more likely to uh, interfere in our elections, which has dramatic effects on US foreign policy. So I think it's wrong to separate rhetoric and action. I think they're two sides of the same coin. For me, I think that there's there's two sides of this. There's how Trump rhetoric affects US foreign policy. And there's also how Trump rhetoric affects the actions of foreign nations. I would say that Trump's rhetoric, you know, when he says things that are out of the ordinary foreign policy establishment, I don't think that that actually trickles down to action in the US government. Because I um I have a strong belief that President Trump does not actually care about foreign policy. So what he does is that he 
delegates a lot of the policy making responsibility to people at the NSC and people in the Pentagon. And these people are are oftentimes career career civil servants who who do their job, um, even if they do it in a way that's very um, inconspicuous. However, I while I don't think that Trump's rhetoric affects U.S. foreign policy, it it affect, it definitely affects the way that that other actors in the international system behave. Uh, I'm not particularly talking about behaving towards the United States. It affects how they behave in the world stage. It affects how they behave in certain regions, and you can see it in the Middle East, like like in the in in the Obama administration. Um, there were not these many players in the Middle East running wild. Turkey wasn't, didn't have its own ambitions. Iran didn't have its own. I mean, Iran had its own ambitions, but they were controlled. Um, Russia, Egypt, Israel were, were, while they were players in the region, they were not just running wild. What happens when with Trump is that basically Trump says that the United States does not really care much about what's going on, and he gives these powers, a way of filling the vacuum. And that's why the Middle East is probably more stable than it has ever been, because there's so many players with so many different goals acting in the region. So to summarize, I, uh, it's Carafano when he said, Dr. Carafano, when he said people focus too much on what Trump says instead of what he does, I think that is correct when it comes to like domestic foreign policy, but it's it's probably a little. It falls short when analyzing the actions of other countries. Yeah, I mean, Franz, I I, I basically agree with you um, on some parts of what you said. Um, I think I just want to clarify, Franz. You said um, that there are more actors in the Middle East, and you said it was. I don't know if you misspoke. You said it was oh. more stable. Do you think it's more stable? No, sorry, or more, more unstable. It's more unstable than it has ever been before because you have Turkey doing okay. its own thing. You have right. Iran doing its own thing. You have the Gulf states doing their own thing. Instead of the United States just directing certain countries to follow their like a central a central strategy, it's just a, like six countries following different strategies. I think what it ultimately comes down to is both, to a certain extent, legally and to and certainly in terms of public perception, Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, is the spokesperson for the United States, and so his rhetoric, whether he intends it to or not, carries a significant amount of weight in terms of how we're controlling relationships with our allies as well as our enemies. And so therefore, his rhetoric should be taken very seriously. That being said, I think it's also, I think Dr. Carafano was trying to make an argument along the lines of, we should focus on policy, we should focus on action rather than just rhetoric. And although I think that understanding Trump's rhetoric is important, I do agree with the point that Oftentimes we have not focused on policy and how and what actions he's actually taking and instead focus on how he's controlling the narrative and taking control of a situation. And I think that there's fair criticism to Trump's rhetoric and how he has um, hurt relationships with allies and hurt diplomatic relations relationships generally. But I also think that there is something to be said for the fact that a lot of people will read something Trump says um, and he may not say it in the best way. Um, and then that's kind of their surface level understanding of the issue rather than actually looking at what's happening on the ground. I think the Middle East deal is a great example of this um, with regards to normalizing relationships with Israel. I think that a lot of people saw the, saw the plan, um, didn't, and just saw that, oh, it was Trump's idea, it was Trump's plan, Trump did this, so therefore I will automatically stand in opposition to it, rather than understanding more of the nuances and complexities to it. Um, so I think that rhetoric, and I agree with Franz, it's both like, um, I think that rhetoric plays a role, but also we should, we should. I don't disagree with Dr. Carafano when he says it's important to look at both sides. Yeah, I think Amanda makes a great point about the Middle East plan, and I, I really am interested to hear from Franz and Zach about like your idea that the Middle East has been more unstable than ever. Um, and you know, that might be true with some some nations in the Middle East, but in my opinion, also the Middle East plan, even though we don't really know what's going to happen with it in the future, it's it's been it's in rec- it's in early stages. I think it's a step in a great direction with 
normalizing relations with Israel and um, normalizing relations also between Israel and other Arab nations. So I, I'd really like to hear your opinions on that. Um, and also, I thought it was interesting um, that we're talking about this disconnect between Trump's uh, President Trump's um, rhetoric versus his actions and policy. And I wanted to bring up a point that Dr. Carafano made, and I wanted you guys to maybe talk about it as well, um, which is that President Trump is really good at listening to his advisors. And this is what Dr. Carafano said. And maybe the fact that there is a disconnect between his rhetoric and what he does is, is a representation of that in that when he says something and then somebody in his administration disagrees and he'll listen to it and that's why it doesn't always get carried out and i yeah i just wanted to hear what you guys thought about that look i think well first julia i think you just made a perfect transition in the middle east so i think we should talk about that um now but in terms of your last point i think the idea that trump can be persuaded by his advisors is true but not because Trump is necessarily a good listener or because he thinks his advisors are doing a good job. I think it's because, as Franz said, I don't think Donald Trump thinks a lot about or cares a lot about foreign policy. So sometimes his advisors can make, you know, like a, a just like one argument and and Trump and Professor, uh, oh my gosh, President Trump uh, will basically just be like, well, I'm indifferent about this. Like, let's do it. That's a good idea. And if he's not sold, like, I feel like there are some things that President Trump is absolutely sold to and he will never give up. Um, for example, his unilateralism, his idea that we're getting a raw deal from all our allies, that will never go away. But I think on the margins, President Trump can be convinced by his advisors who are in the more traditional, like follow more traditionally um, American foreign policy than Trump does. And he can be convinced on those margins. Um, on the I, Moving to the Middle East, though, I think, Julia, you made a good transition. I really disagree with Dr. Carafano that the Middle East is in a better place now. Well, okay, see, it's difficult because I think the Middle East is in a better place now than it was when Trump took office, but I would not chalk that up to President Trump. Um, I think the fact of the matter is, is that the world is going through global transformations and that affects the way that the world is situated. And it doesn't have to be President Trump's foreign policy that makes it better uh, or more stable in the region. And like my biggest gripe with Dr. Carafano's analysis of Trump foreign policy in the Middle East is with Iran. And I'm not an Iran expert, of course not. But I think the pulling out of the JCPOA was an enormous mistake. And the idea that we have achieved our goals vis-a-vis -vis Iran through pulling out of the JCPOA is a is is just flawed because at the end of the day, the JCPOA was there to make Iran less likely to build nuclear weapons. That was the that was the goal of the deal. And the fact of the matter is, is that at the end of Trump's four years, we have pulled out of the JCPOA and Iran is more likely to have both nuclear weapons and the things that the Republican Party hated about the JCPOA, they're more likely to have those as well. That includes ballistic missiles and sunset clauses don't exist because there is no deal at all. So I I just think the whole pulling out of the JCPOA, Iran is more stable, is flawed. I do not think Trump foreign policy towards Iran has been productive at all. I'd be so, interested to hear you guys' um, thoughts. As Zach said, this is a complicated region to analyze. Because if you go back to 2016, or 2017, really, January 2017, when Trump took office, I mean, for one, the Islamic State has been wiped out. Um, we have had recently these deals with um, the Gulf, between the Gulf states and Israel, between Sudan and Israel, between some of the some Balkan states and Israel as well. Um, and those are tangible goods. I mean, that is that is a that is a situation that has improved. Um, however, the issue that I have with the Middle East is that. As the United States has rescinded its its position as a leader, a lot of actors are pouring in to fill that vacuum. 
and that's making the powder keg that the middle of the Middle East higher to explode. Like it's it's giving it a higher chance to explode. Now, it is undeniable that Turkey has a lot more influence influence that I, that it had four years ago. It is undeniable that Russia has a lot more influence that it had four years ago. It is undeniable that Egypt and and the Gulf states have more influence than they had four years ago. Um, I'm a, and to be perfectly honest with you, I'm not that worried about the whole Iran thing because I, I am in, in, I'm more of a believer that the JCPOA, well, it was a flawed deal, and that since it was not ratified by Congress, it was always it was always going to have growing into the possibility of being um, exercised, but. But that's and I also I also feel like the Iranian nuclear threat is not that much of a threat for the United States because we can always count on Israel to take care of that for us because like believe me, Israel would not would never allow Iran to develop a nuclear weapon, and 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 that's one one of the few things we can be certain of in international relations. Um. So when it comes to analyzing the Middle East and its stability, I guess it's more. About what you care about, like, did you did you did you care about terrorism? Because if you care about terrorism, then one can make an argument that the Middle East is more stable now. But if you care about great power politics, the Middle East is is in a, an extremely precarious situation. Julia, did you also want to talk about the Trump peace deals, or should we move on to some other parts of Dr. Carafano's? No, I think podcast? we're fine with moving on. Zach, did you have something specific that you wanted to touch on? Yeah, I mean, I had a lot of gripes with some of the successes, Dr. Carafano. Um, outlined when he was speaking. Um, and I have a lot of respect for Dr. Carafano. He's uh, super, super nice to us. Um, and we've really appreciated that what Heritage has helped the podcast do. Um, but obviously, I have a lot of personal um, foreign policy disagreements with Dr. Carafano. My biggest disagreement is his articulation of the Trump administration's failures. Uh, because like, it was shocking to me that what what Dr. Carafano did not talk about in terms of Trump foreign policy failures. And we could talk about any of these, but in my opinion, the Trump foreign policy, like President Trump, his administration has failed, failed on the following issues, climate change, COVID-19, North Korea, Venezuela, tariffs, US image in the world. And the biggest, or one of the biggest ones is was whatever the hell went on in Ukraine <laughs> with Trump being impeached. And look, I think all these issues are incredibly important. Um, on the topic of climate change, President Trump didn't even try. All right. Like the fact of the matter is, is that the Paris Climate Accords, there is literally nothing in the Paris Climate Accords that mandates the United States to do anything other than report. It is not a costly agreement. That is a lie. The Paris Climate Accords does not mandate that the United States reduce its carbon emissions. It suggests the United States does so, and it uh, it mandates that the United States makes a goal, but it does not mandate that the United States has to reach that goal. So the Trump administration didn't even try to to, uh, to address climate change, which is a international issue with with global. Um, with global implications. So I think that's a foreign policy failure. The second is COVID-19. Like the Trump administration didn't even try to work with other nations or learn with other nations on how to combat this virus. And it's, and it's frankly, it's killed American lives, which is terrible. North Korea failed. I mean, I, in effect, like it's, it's, this is a less of a failure for me because I feel like North Korea is one of those issues where you can't, it's very difficult to get right because presidents have been failing to address this issue since the '90s. Um, so I don't, I don't necessarily blame Trump for not denuclearizing the Korean Peninsula, but I do blame Trump for like buddying up to Kim Jong Un, which is really weird and like horribly disrupts U.S. image in the world. Trump literally said he was a like he has a bromance with Kim Jong Un. He said he wrote Kim Jong Un love letters. This is a guy who <laughs> has done terrible things to his own population. And is 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 a bad person. Um, Venezuela is another one of those conflicts that I think is difficult to address. Franz, you might want to talk about that. My number one thing, though, my number one reason why I think Trump foreign policy has failed is because of U.S. image in the world. If you look at any major polling of world opinion on 
how they think the United States would act in the world and what they're and and whether they are favorable towards the United States, it has dramatically gone down since President Trump took office. I think some like gross tiny percent of world population thinks that President Trump would do the right thing if in an air in um some event in foreign policy. I think it's like 16 to like 30% given on the uh, based on the country. And I think US image in the world is like the absolute most important part of US foreign policy because the United States is supposed to be this exceptional leader of the free world. And I think that's our biggest selling power is our soft power. People want to come to the United States. People want to emulate the United States. People want to reach the ideals that the United States has has articulated to create a better world. And Donald Trump's hit, specifically Donald Trump, his degradation of US image in the world because of how he has handled the office and how he has handled foreign policy, I think it's a disgrace. And honestly, I, I, I hope to God that on November 3rd, Biden wins and that we can somehow turn this around. So I had, I agree with some of the points you made, Zach, and I, I'm hesitant to agree with some of them as well. Um, my question to you would be like, based on all the failures that you just listed, do you see any forms of successes in terms of Trump's foreign policy, um, over his first term in office? Yeah. I mean, of course, I think Dr. Carifano, um, articulated some of them. One of them is that ISIS doesn't exist anymore. Um, or, or well, look, ISIS as a caliphate does not exist anymore for the most part. That's a foreign policy success. I mean, it's debatable on whether or not you're going to attribute that the Trump it was going on under the Obama administration and basically Trump's military generals just continued that campaign. Um, I think another potential success is how the Trump administration has framed the issue of the rising of China because previous administrations didn't frame this issue properly as a challenge, as a competition that the United States has to deal with. But I do not think that the Trump administration's policies towards China have been strong. Um, the only, the other thing, and there's probably some I'm forgetting right now, Amanda, because there's a lot that Trump has done. The one thing I'd also give him credit for is US foreign policy towards the South China Sea and US foreign policy towards the Quad. I think the Quad is a, actually a pretty solid um, dialogue and a pretty solid forum for US cooperation with allies. And it's kind of hilarious because like Trump loves to denigrate allies. That's his favorite thing is to him to say, we're not getting a good deal out of this allyship. But somehow the quad just like struck him the right way. And he thinks that integration with, I mean, further cooperation with Japan, further cooperation with Australia and India is a good thing. And I think that's commendable because I agree. I think if we want to solve the issue of a free and open Indo-Pacific, we're going to need those nations and South Korea. Um, but yeah, so I'd give him some credit on some areas, but for the most part, I think Trump foreign policy has been fool's gold, as Professor Hal Brand said, um, meaning they are trends that were undertaken under the Obama administration or global transformations that have nothing to do with Trump. Um, or failures. And the only successes are, are the ones I just articulated, in my opinion. I have a more narrow definition of failures, because when I think of foreign policy failures, I think of the Iranian hostage crisis. I think of the United States, the Carter administration allowing the, the Soviets to invade Afghanistan without doing anything about it. I think of the, the Gulf of Tonkin incident in Vietnam in 1964. I think of the Iraq war. I don't think, with the exception of coronavirus and the failure of leadership that came with it, I don't think Trump has had any of those like failures under my definition. However, what ha the 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 larger disappointment with the Trump administration is that they've been stagnant, they've been lethargic, uh, they've been lazy about foreign policy. They they haven't been proactive at all, um, at least not. Uh, at the at the top level, because I mean, as Zach said, we we do we have seen some important uh, progress made in in the South China Sea uh, with regards to the Quad, which is the alliance between Japan or the informal alliance between Japan, Australia, um, the United States, and India. We've seen some improvements with Latin America with the Latin American neighbors. Uh, we've seen um, some European nations increase their GDP, their their defense spending. 
as a percentage of the GDP. We've seen the end of the ISIS caliphate. But to me, it's not so much that the Trump administration has had failures. Uh, sorry, what disappoints me of the Trump administration is not its failures. It's just its lack or its unwillingness to be proactive on the world stage that really, that I really think is a missed opportunity. Well, what about climate change? I'm interested in Amanda and Julia, yeah, what you guys think um, about that too. I just wanted to jump in actually with that. So in response to all that you talked about, Zach, and that's quite a lot, there are definitely things I agree with you about. For example, North Korea, I think I definitely agree with your assessment on North Korea. I think by meeting with Kim Jong-un, it only increased his legitimacy and his idea that what he's doing, which is threatening the United States and the Western world, is succeeding. And it didn't end up giving us anything. Um, in respect with, to, with respect to the Paris Climate Accords, I am a little bit more ambivalent. I've seen a lot of assessments that have said that, you know, even if the United States maintains its commitments um, in up to 2030, I think, um, that it wouldn't make such a difference in the in in climate change. And I, I don't know, I haven't studied enough on these issues to personally agree or disagree with that. Um, however, with your assessment, Zach, you did say that with the Paris Climate Accords, it doesn't mandate that the U.S. do anything um, and that, you know, President Trump didn't even try to make an effort. But I guess my question is, why be a part of the Paris Climate Accords if you're not going to try to do anything or if you're not going to abide by your commitments, right? Like, my opinion is if you if you're part of the Paris Climate Accords, you should try to maintain your commitments or else there's not really a point in doing it. And Zach, you're, to me, it sounds like what you said was Trump should have, President Trump should have just stayed in the Paris Climate Accords because it didn't mandate the U.S. to do anything. So, you know, the U.S. isn't under any pressure to make any changes at all as long as it stays there for, to look good. And I'm not so sure I agree with that. Um, with the U.S.'s image in the world, I think... Zach, you made a really good point that a lot of the there's a lot of successes with, you know, the Quad and in the Indo-Pacific. And I think that kind of contrasts with your point that the U.S. image in the world is failing because, you know, I think Dr. Carafano brought this up, that the U.S. has been more strongly backing Australia and India and Latin America. And that has um, that has strengthened their um, pushback against China and also I think I wanted to bring up to the Middle East one more time. I know we kind of finished talking about it, but I remember, Zach, maybe you saying that it was all like with the Middle East, it was more of like a continuation of Obama's, the, the foreign policy in Obama's era. And I'm not so sure I'm eager to agree with that assessment. Um, I don't think the Trump administration inherited a Middle East policy from the Obama administration that was... Um, in line to what the Trump administration was doing, and that was even so successful at all. Um, I think it was the Trump administration that started to um, try to campaign and develop a more sustainable presence in the Middle East, whereas the Obama administration was more campaigning for leaving the um, Middle East. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Okay. Lots of things to respond to. I know we don't have that much time, so I'll just run through them. On the idea of the Paris Climate Accords, International cooperation on climate change is a necessity. Without international cooperation on climate change, we will not be under two degrees or 1.5 or two degrees Celsius by 2100. We won't be on track. It just, that, that's a fact. Um, unless there is like an act of God, which helps us discover a technology that dramatically reduces the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, then international cooperation is necessary. So with that premise in mind, you can disagree with that, I guess. You can think that some technology will save us, but I think that's a bad bet to take. Um, go listen to Bentley Allen, uh, our podcast listeners, if, if, if you want to know more about climate change. But so on the idea that Trump should pull out of the Paris Climate Accord Agreement, like the fact of the matter is, is that the United States has to be doing things about climate change. It, it has to. The United States is the world's largest emitter. Actually, it might be China. One or two. And it has a role to play in this in this problem. And the fact of the matter is that the United States has always, always taken a proactive world role on solving global issues. That's that's the United States foreign policy right there. And this is an issue that requires US leadership. Without it, we're not getting anywhere. And there are going to be catastrophic effects of climate change 
which are facts. Like this is science. There will be catastrophic effects of climate change if countries don't band together and do things about it. Um, so I think the idea that Trump can should pull out, I, that's just, it's wrong to me. Um, the reason, but more importantly, the reason why Trump pulled out of the Paris climate agreements, it was, it was entirely political. The reason why I bring up that the Paris climate agreements are not mandatory or like don't mandate you do reach your goals is because Trump could have stayed in the Paris climate agreement set a really, really low NDC, which is essentially how much you are contributing to reducing your carbon emissions, and just not done anything about it. He could have set an NDC of some ridiculously low amount or zero, and that would have been fine. The, there was no reason to pull out of the agreement other than political signaling to his base and saying, look, we don't care about climate change. It was a political decision to do so. It was not a pragmatic decision to do so. He could have stayed in Paris and just not combated climate change. Um, number two, and then Franz, I know you're probably dying to speak, Amanda, too. Um, Trump should just... Uh, number two was US image in the world. It's a fact that US image in the world is worse now than it has been in decades. You can go look at Pew Research polls. Um, this is... there's. I mean, I guess you could debate the polling, um, which is valid, I guess. But also anecdotal stories I've heard from friends all over the world who have traveled and speak to like I met this girl at SICE who was just in the Peace Corps who basically said like Georgians are asking her like why Trump has abandoned the world like quote for quote um, it's just scary to me so I, I think the idea that U.S. image in the world is better off now than it was before Trump is is factually wrong and then last but not least the Middle East and ISIS the Obama administration started the military campaign against ISIS that's another fact. The Trump administration continued that campaign and accelerated it. Um, they engaged in other uh, different campaigns um, in the Middle East that the Obama administration didn't do, but the combating of ISIS was an Obama-era policy. So I think that's just a continuation. And then also, we haven't talked about Israel at all, but Trump's botching of, of Israel domestic, uh, the Israel peace deal, so called, his plan for prosperity was just a joke, man. Like, the, it was immediately, <laughs> no one even looked at it. They put, Jared Kushner put out the Israel plan for peace, and it was never even discussed because it was so heavily weighted towards Israel's favor that people laughed it off the stage, essentially. Um, yeah. All right. I'll let you guys talk. Sorry. The first point is that, well, I think that climate change is a existential issue a very important international problem to be dealt with. What Julia said is factual. It was extremely symbolic. And while Trump's decision to pull out of the deal was political and not pragmatic, Obama's decision to enter the deal was also political and not pragmatic. Because at the very last moment, before it was going to be signed, Obama had to go through, the administration had to go through and change all the shalls to mites. Uh, because they knew that Congress was, there was no way in hell that Congress was going to pass that. And the reason I'm saying it was political, not pragmatic, is because the Obama administration did not try to make a deal, to make an agreement that the Republicans in the House and the Senate were going to pass. And that, to me, is the epitome of a political, symbolic, and not pragmatic thing to do. Second, um, on your point on ISIS, um, yeah, I mean, Obama, Obama started the plan, started the military operations against ISIS. Uh, but it's also a fact of the matter that Trump escalated our operations against ISIS. And when it comes to like, oh, yeah, like we should give credit to past presidents because they started this policy. I think that it's a slippery slope there, because in that case, right, we have to give credit to Kennedy for starting uh, the, the starting the NASA program that took us to the moon, even though it was, you know, 12 years later when we landed there during the next administration. I think it's a very slippery I think it's we a very do. slippery slope, but but uh, because like these, the NSC and the Pentagon have had decades-long plans in 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 reserves, and we can't always go back to that to the presidents that originally like approved of the plan. We have to give credit to the presidents who executed the plan and success and 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 finished the mission. Um, but I would be I, I really want to hear what Amanda has to say about this as well. I think this is actually climate change is a really important issue for me personally, and. I know a lot of young people, I'm sure like all of us had had conversations with our peers about the importance of this issue. Um, and I think in my opinion, it's one of the most distinguishing factors between the Trump administration and the Biden administration's plan 
with regards to foreign policy. And I think this is actually a great transition into the topic of Biden foreign policy, which refers to our episode with Dr. Lindsay. Um, So I wanted to hear about what you guys thought about Dr. Lindsay's contrastings between the Trump administration and the Biden administration's plans generally, um, even like if you want to talk about specifically with climate change um, and bring that into the conversation. Sure. I'll get us started. And maybe Julia, if you want to chime in. Um, I agree with how Dr. Lindsay framed the foreign policy outlooks of Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Um, I think he was pretty spot on. Look, like Joe Biden essentially has follows the same foreign policy tradition that basically every one of our presidents has followed since 1945. Like he wants to engage with the world. He wants to show that U.S. leadership is a model for the world. Donald Trump sees U.S. engagement as a, in the world as a bad deal. He sees us getting our pockets picked at every turn and you know we should go at it alone because we're the best at doing it alone. And I fundamentally disagree with that. On the topic of climate change, I someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure Joe Biden has said that when he becomes, if he becomes president, he would immediately rejoin Paris. Um, and I think that's an important step. And look, Paris is not the end all be all. Like no one thinks it is, but there has to be some action on climate change. And if there's not, then we lose, right? Like Paris is the first step, in my opinion. Um, and, and that's really important. Yeah, I wanted to jump in too with talking about climate change. Um, I'm definitely, I definitely agree that there needs to be international cooperation on this issue. Um, I, I agree with you on that, Zach. But the the idea of joining, rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, though, I'm not as convinced that it's the best idea because. I know I've seen articles saying how when we were part of the Paris Climate Agreement, other major emitters of um, other other major emitters like China and India were not abiding um, by the terms or their commitments in the Paris Climate Agreement. And I fail to see how rejoining would get them to also um, to also make commitments and um, try to follow through on those commitments. And I think exactly because of the fact that climate change is an issue that we need to tackle through international cooperation. If the United States is the only great emitter or one of only one or two or three that is actually making commitments and changing um, things that they're doing to follow through on those commitments, then we're not going to make that much progress on the issue of climate change. And so I'm really excited to see maybe if what the Biden administration or if the Trump administration gets reelected, what changes they can make to the Paris Climate Agreement or maybe what um, new agreement they can make in order to make sure that um, countries are following through on their commitments. But I'm not so sure that just rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement and just doing that um, would would make any difference other than hurting the American economy. And that's exa- I think that's exactly right, Julie. I think that, that the issue with the Climate Paris Agreement is that it's symbolic. It doesn't do anything. Um, the Biden administration would save a lot of time. It would save a lot of paper too uh, if it skips signing an executive order to rejoin the Paris Agreement and instead focuses that time on lobbying Congress to get more subsidies for for renewable energy uh, companies. It would. Uh, there are other tangible things that can be done, even bipartisan things can be done. Uh, on energy and on renewable energy um, than rejoining a symbolic agreement that does not do anything. Because like, without the conce- without Congress approval, that deal is just symbolic. It doesn't do anything else except for, you know, you know, collect data. Which if that's your definition of, of, of you know, of success in the climate scene, then congratulations. But, but I would much rather uh, the Biden administration spend the time seeking legislation on subsidies for renewable energy sources and other ways of combating uh, carbon emissions as well. So I actually think this is a fascinating argument um, because basically, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Julian Franz, but what you're arguing is that Paris climate accords aren't doing enough and we are better able to combat climate change on our own. Look, that's not what President Trump 
that's not why President Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreements. President Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreements because he said it was expensive and because President Trump does not believe that climate change is an existential threat. And he's even questioned if it exists in the past. He once tweeted that it was a Chinese hoax. So I think it's interesting that Franz and Julie, you guys are arguing that the Paris Climate Agreements isn't doing enough, not that we shouldn't. Trump is arguing that we shouldn't combat climate change, so we should pull out. You guys are arguing that it doesn't do enough to combat climate change, so we should pull out. So I'm more amenable to that argument than another argument. And like I said, if that's a mischaracterization of you guys, that's fine. I do think the Paris Climate Agreements is important, and I disagree with the idea that it will hurt the American economy. Um, like I said, the Paris Climate Agreements are it is a framework to get stuff done. It is not a it doesn't like when you join Paris, it doesn't mean like, okay, we immediately have to end the coal and natural gas and oil industries in the United States. No, it it says you set you set goals for reducing your carbon emissions and you figure out how you want to get there. And it that wouldn't necessarily hurt the economy. Joe Biden has has shown why it wouldn't hurt the economy because essentially green technology, green energy is is a job creation device. And and phasing out like antiquated fossil fuel industries over time, over time is a good idea that would not necessarily hurt the US economy. And Paris is part of that in my in my opinion. It's a flawed agreement, but it's the best we have. And I don't personally see us being able to negotiate like a a tea filled international well, agreement that's anytime the thing, soon, right? Like like if if Biden you know comes into office and on the first day he rejoins the 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 climate the, the climate courts, you understand why that's a political move because that's not doing anything. That's basically signaling to his base. That's giving his base red meat that oh yeah, like I care about climate change, but this doesn't really do anything. That time, like if we're talking about pragmatic solutions to climate change, that time would be better spent going to Congress and convincing the congressional leaders of actually passing uh, strong legislation on the matter. And I'm not talking, you know, the silliness of the Green New Deal. I'm talking about like small practical bills, such as like subsidies to, for renewable energies towards solar, towards wind, towards um, other forms of renewable energy as well, um, to to get those carbon emissions down instead of rejoining a symbolic deal that does not anything and that does not do anything and relies way too heavily on developing countries and China and India that frankly they were just not going to 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 abide by this. But I would be interested in hearing what Amanda has to say about this as well. I think that this conversation about climate change is super fascinating because it reminds me of one of the key points that Professor Sita Raman was making in our episode with him on progressive foreign policy, which is the integration of domestic and foreign policy based around large ideas and big themes um, and large strategies that the U.S. has uh, to um, generally when it comes to deciding what our future looks like. And I think that climate change is the perfect example of this, of where it requires some form of international cooperation, as well as some form of domestic, of like a relook into our domestic issues and a, and a reflection on how we need to balance both and create a more integrated strategy in terms of how we're dealing with our future and the strategies in which we choose to not only combat climate change, I think, but combat other issues. So another issue, for example, that I'm passionate about is the idea of like human rights and how um, reflecting on U.S. issues of human rights. I mean, we've all seen, we all are familiar with the BLM movement this summer, um, as well as some of the issues that have been happening in the detention centers um, across the U.S. Um, that contain um, Latin American migrants, um, requiring the U.S. to reflect on its own history in order to prevent, to promote and protect democratic freedoms abroad. I mean, this was an issue that was even brought up under the Kennedy administration during the Cold War, during the civil rights movement on how um, it essentially looks, uh, communism, communist countries were, whether they were actually believing this or not, but according to their rhetoric, they were promoting the idea that, um, segregation is wrong. They believe in equality of all races. And then they would say, look at the United States, look at what's happening there during the 60s, during the civil rights movement. How can we expect a country like that to promote freedoms when it's literally beating and um, bloodying all of its citizens at home? And so I think it's Professor Sita Raman's points about um, 
including domestic foreign domestic concerns and foreign policy concerns and integrating them into a larger grand strategy as to the US's plans for the future is fascinating not only in terms of how they apply to climate but also how they apply to other foreign policy issues. You know, Amanda, that's actually a great segue. I have my critiques of progressive foreign policy because I think that uh, there's this term in international relations called linkage, which means that when you're negotiating on one topic, to ha- you, you often bring other subjects. So, for example, if you are negotiating with Russia on nuclear arms, linkage, an example of linkage would be bringing, uh, you know, cybersecurity into the equation. You know what I mean? Like it's it's bringing other things into into unrelated conversations, and that's my critique of progressive foreign policy. For example, when, um when Elizabeth Warren in the primaries often said that she doesn't want to negotiate free trade agreements with countries unless there are environmental and labor provisions in that agreement. And and I think that's just an unproductive way, unproductive and high-minded way of, of entering negotiations. Because like we have the privilege of caring about those things. But when we're negotiating a free trade agreement with... I don't know, um, Nigeria or Brazil, they have other desperate needs. And I don't think we should leverage our, uh, like, uh, our, our economy opening and their economy opening on, 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 on labor provisions and environmental provisions that we, we and other Western countries are really the only people who can afford. So that's one of, the, of, of, the, of, my, of my critiques of, of progressive foreign policy, but I, would be willing, I, would be, I really want to hear what everyone else has, thinks about, about the, the grand scheme of, of what Professor Sitaraman was be, uh, speaking about. I think that's a fair critique, Franz. And I, I agree with you that like, um, there's like the saying of like, good should never be like the enemy of like perfect or something like that. And there's the extent of like, sometimes you have to get, there's a practical aspect of policy ultimately, and it has to be about what you can get done and what's reasonable to put on the table, what is on the table that we're currently sitting at. Um, that being said, I also think that like the reason why I tend to, why I find progressive foreign policy so fascinating is because it really does focus on this larger, greater vision for what um, an American future looks like domestically and abroad. And I think that's something that is both like intellectually fascinating to me and something that um, provides a lot of optimism in my opinion, as well as provides a lot of um, like, I I more or less agree with it, but I also understand the criticisms of it as to like, essentially progressive foreign policy could easily be framed as like the high minded liberal elite coming up with whatever they want to in their perfect little castles um, and then dispensing it to the rest of the world. Right. So like, how do you bring in the rest of the decision makers and the rest of the ideas um, into this quote unquote, like larger, grander vision of what a future could look like? That's exactly right. It's very idealistic, in my opinion. It doesn't, it doesn't hold up to the realities of the international system, in my opinion. But it's like a nice thing. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's like, a, it's like communism, you know, it's like everyone thinks like, oh, this is like, you know, this pretty thing that, that like sounds good on paper, but like, it, you know, it fails miserable every time in the real world. Yeah, and I see both sides of that, Franz. And I, I think the optis, optimist in me and like the person who is not getting bogged down by the 24-hour news cycle, which is how I happen to be feeling today at 2 p.m., um, like agrees with that. But there's also parts of me that understand the very idealistic and perhaps unrealistic aims of it. Zach, did you want to chime in here? Yeah, I think you guys have characterized it really well, so I don't have a ton to add, um, but I might as well just... Drop in two points here. First is linkage. Um, Franz, I think I agree with you. Um, I think linkage has its place and linkage sometimes doesn't have its place. And it's it's got to be nuanced, right? Like you should never go in thinking like, okay, we're not going to connect human rights to trade, but you should never think like, okay, we have to connect human rights with nuclear proliferation. Like sometimes linkage works, sometimes it doesn't. And essentially, like you said, Amanda, you can't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Um yeah, so that's interesting. And then human rights at home, Amanda, I, I agree with what you said about human rights at home and what Professor Sita Raman said about human rights at home. Like, look, like America has ideals and that's, I think, its strongest, strongest weapon is our ideals are some of the best in the world. Our values are some of the best in the world. But the United States does a really, really bad job of reaching those ideals especially domestically. 
um, in, in my opinion, um, which doesn't mean it cannot reach those ideals in the future. This is not me saying the United States is the world's worst country. No, I don't believe that at all. I think the United States does a generally good job, but it has work to do. And when the United States has work to do at home, um, people view that abroad negatively. Like they just won't, it's not a credible argument for the United States to say, Mike Pompeo tweeted this. Okay, it was like two weeks ago. Mike Pompeo tweeted, if there's any interference in elections or or threats to democracy in Africa, there will be consequences. And the day that Pompeo tweeted that, Trump was talking about not accepting results of the election. And I'm like, come on, dude, this is so ironic. And the thing is, it's not funny. Like that's not funny to me. That's scary. I that terrifies me that we cannot live up to our own ideals at home. And I think that's a huge problem that we've seen under the Trump administration. And um, yeah, so I think you guys characterized it well. And Professor Sita Raman's ideas are certainly interesting, and I I want to think about them more. If no one else has any other topics, there's one thing I want to circle back to. Two things I want to circle back to. One is Julia. I know you wanted to talk about Dr. Lindsay's. Um, comment about how to judge foreign policy um, in regards to Biden's past foreign policy decisions. Then also, I want to make one quick comment about Russia and Ukraine because we forgot to get there during Carifano. And then I think we'll probably wrap up. So Julia, do you want to hit that? That sounds like a great plan. Um, Before we get to that, also, one more thing that I also wanted to hit on with Professor Sita Raman's um, podcast, if any of you guys want to talk about it um, after, after I bring it up, that's perfectly fine too. I thought something really interesting that he brought up was the idea of weaponized interdependence. And I think like it's the idea that, you know, economic integration gets used as a tool to accomplish particular ends. And um, some countries that have more power in these um, global economic groups or um, yeah, global economic groups have more an asymmetric power um, in being able to achieve the ends that they want to. And so if any of you guys want to talk about that, um, that's fine. I just wanted to bring that up as an interesting point that Sita Raman made. Um, in regards to Dr. Lindsay's point, yes, I did. I remember when we talked to him about um, some of the rights criticisms of Biden, we talked about how there's this one criticism on the right that Biden had been wrong about every foreign policy decision um, and that um, and, and Dr. Lindsay said that past foreign policy decisions are not indicators of future foreign policy outcomes, something along those lines. And I think maybe I myself was kind of interested in what he meant by that. And maybe listeners, too, are also interested in that. And so, um, Franz, Amanda, Zach, if you guys have any insight on that, I'd love to hear what you guys think about that. You know, the funny thing about that quote, about the Robert Gates quote that said that Biden has been on the wrong side of of, of, of history and every major foreign policy decision is that that the context of that quote is actually Robert Gates speaking wonderfully of Biden. It's it's kind of funny. Like if you if you, if you expand the quote, it's after that there's this like paragraph of Robert Gates just like being in love with Biden as a person and as a as a and as a as a human. Um, you know, I I disagree with Robert Gates's like that that little bit of Robert Gates's analysis on on, on Biden because I think Biden has been on the uh, to your point, Amanda, for example, you might be excited about this. Biden has always been a huge proponent of human rights. He was one of the of the leading senators uh, that pushed for the United States to push the South African government to end up uh, apartheid. He was one of the few senators back then that pushed the Clinton administration to intervene in Yugoslavia um, when the Serbs were killing the Bosnian Muslims. And he's he's always like he was also one of those senators that that was pushing the Clinton administration to intervene in Rwanda. So he, this issue of humanitarian rights and humanitarian uh, situations is very personal to him. Um, I but the thing that excites me most about a potential Biden administration in terms of foreign policy is that it seems that he could be he could have a foreign policy in the same mold as Ronald Reagan, one that really puts uh, the ideology of democratic capitalism first and center again, and tries to work with partners instead of having this weird transactional relationship at every turn. No, Joe Biden is gonna go out there, he's going to rally Western liberal democracies and our Latin American neighbors to hopefully like 
put, take on the, the the take on the the fight to China in their backyard, and I think that 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 this is one of the 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 things that one of the best things that Biden can do. I'll end by saying that that Pete Buttigieg had a probably one of the strongest moments of the Democratic primary debates was when he said that that in order to win this next Cold War, we need to turn it into an ide- ideological war. We need to understand that this is a conflict between democratic capitalism and autocratic capitalism. And we need to rally the nations, the democratic nations of the world to take on China and their cronies as well. I'm just going to hop in here and say that Franz's analysis that Biden's foreign policy will be a foreign policy of Ronald Reagan literally has to be the Franziest statement to ever take place. So I appreciate you, Franz, for dropping that in there. Um, I would expect nothing less of you. I would say I I generally agree. Um, Julia, on your question about Dr. Lindsay's comment on how to judge past foreign policy experience, I think it's tough. And the way that I think about it is in American Grand Strategy with Professor Brands and Professor Gavin, we learned about these things called 4951 decisions, where basically you just have this decision in front of you that is incredibly tough to predict the outcomes of. It is a very on-the-wire decision. You can go either way. It's 49-51, and you hope to pick the 51, but sometimes you pick the 49. And I think sometimes it comes down to luck and just like what happens in the world to determine whether or not your foreign policy was good or bad. I really encourage anyone who does have has no idea what I'm talking about, go read Professor Francis Gavin's um most recent War on the Rocks article where he discusses what it means to evaluate foreign policy. Because I think these 4951 decisions makes it really tough to say that someone's foreign policy was bad, someone's foreign policy was good, unless unless their stated worldview and their stated reasoning for the decisions is bad logically. And I think that is the case of, of President Trump, because President Trump's worldview, in my opinion, is wrong. He thinks the best way to get to, to increase prosperity in the world is through American unilateralism and 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 castigating our allies to uh, I don't even know if castigating is the right word. I have no idea. Whatever uh, is 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 by pressuring our allies to like. In, in, like give us a better deal. I just think that is a flawed argument. And that's why I would say his foreign policy decisions have been bad. And that's the same thing. Like when I talk about Trump's failures on climate change, that's not because Trump made a bad 49-51 decision. Trump's reasoning behind that decision was flawed. And I think that's how you evaluate foreign policy I think we could give Zach a whole second podcast all about how he critiques Trump's foreign policy. But bringing it back to Biden foreign policy, um, the, the thing that Dr. Lindsay brought up that I think is fair. And I think it also speaks to one of the points that you were making, Zach, is what does the, it's like, what does the, how do we think about the past in terms of, and how do we think about the past and how do we utilize what we know about the past to help predict our, our future? And I think that one of the challenges that we all have right now when it comes to predicting what a Biden foreign policy looks like is the fact that I don't think Biden is going to be super heavily involved in foreign policy purely because of the fact that our current domestic concerns are so great in number. For example, like rebooting the economy after coronavirus, um, the distribution of a vaccine, like should we need one, the issues of like criminal justice that have been brought up this summer and brought to the forefront. It's just so numerous in number that the extent to which that his administration can really act as that leader ideologically, like Franz was speaking to, is going to be very challenging. And I understand that all countries are going to be facing economic challenges post-coronavirus and just general challenges uh, domestically. But the extent to which the United States has those just because of our size and the scope of our issue and the fact that COVID has hit our country particularly hard is going to be a lot greater than a lot of other countries. And so it's going to be a matter of Biden working with allies um, who share our democratic freedoms, but the extent to which the United States can take leadership on those issues is something I really question. I actually disagree with that analysis because that's not who Joe Biden is and has always been. Joe Biden has always been a foreign policy person above all. 
Like that has been his bread and butter since he joined the Senate in 1976. And he has been running for president for 30 years. And he has had ideas about foreign policy that were suppressed by the Obama administration. And, and, and both President Obama and other members of his, of his National Security Council. And he is for sure going to implement them uh, because Joe, Biden has, Joe, Joe Biden's bread and butter has always been foreign policy. And while we have a lot of domestic concerns, I would be, I would be ready for disappointment if, you, if, if one believes that Joe Biden is going to put criminal justice reform ahead of foreign policy. Or, or, or even or even domestic climate change policy as well. Because, like, you know, we have to go with the man's instincts and his instincts have always pointed towards foreign policy. And also, he's going to have one of the most, like, if, if the rumors are to be believed, he's, he's going to have probably one of the most competent uh, national security councils of, of modern history as well. Yeah, and I just wanted to go back really quickly to Zach's um, assessment on how we can how we can really judge foreign policy, past decisions, and future outcomes. And, you know, thank you so much, Zach, for that really fascinating new way of analyzing. I didn't really think of that before, and I think that's really interesting. However, I I guess, like, since I haven't taken the class that you were talking about, um, I kind of thought about classes that I had taken before, and I took this really interesting um, medical humanitarianism class last year uh, with Dr. Benjamin. And we talked about how when it comes to decisions, um, and this is more on the humanitarian level, but I think it applies, it's not just important to judge what the impetus for that decision was, what the justification was, or as maybe you use, Zach, the worldview is. It's also very important to judge what the outcomes are. And I think that applies here too. It's regardless of what you think about President Trump's worldview, about Biden's worldview, I think it's still important to analyze what the outcomes of the decisions they made in the past were when thinking about whether or not we want you know, them to continue making decisions for us in, with their administration. I think that's an important factor to take into account in addition to what you talked about, Zach, which is the worldview. I agree. And that class was so amazing. And I remember having like dozens of arguments with people in that class about intentions versus outcomes for like hours. So great class. If any Hopkins students, Hopkins students, you're listening, go take any class of Dr. Benjamin. She's the best. Thank you guys so much for the great discussion. I think it's time for us to wrap up. And so Zach, maybe you want to start us off with your final comments. Sure, Julia. I mean, look, Amanda, Franz, Julia, I have really enjoyed this discussion. It's been a fun time. Um, listeners, we would love to hear what you guys think about it. I think I'll, I'll say this in the introduction as well, but we want to hear from you guys. So send us emails. Um, we want to hear more from you. Closing thoughts are, look, I think we had three fantastic episodes, but there's so much more to learn about all these three people than, or, or all these three issues than just our 45-minute podcast. So I really encourage everyone to go read more about Trump foreign policy, read more about the way that Biden might change that Trump foreign policy, and read more about progressive foreign policy because the internet is at the tip of your fingers. Um, and yeah, there's so much knowledge and information to learn. So formulate those opinions for yourselves and let us know what you think. Yeah. Um, I second everything that Zach just said. But what I want to end with is I strongly believe that 2021 is the United States' 1948 moment. What do I mean? What do I mean by that? I mean it's it's going to be the year that the United States has to make a decision of what role it wants to have in the world going forward. Does it want to continue its hegemonic dominance, or does it want to just be one of many uh, superpowers? I personally don't think that the nation that that believes in manifest destiny and, and, and American exceptionalism wants to be sharing the the top spot with anyone. I certainly don't. I want to make sure that, that the United States continues to maintain its hegemonic um, stability, hegemonic position in the world, which is why in 2021, if, it, if the Biden administration wins, if the Trump administration wins, both administrations have to commit to focusing on great power competition and competing with China. So my final thoughts are, one, echoing what Zach and Franz said, like our listeners should be informed in their own way, go out and make your own decisions about what you think about these issues. I know I personally want to do more digging 
Um, and I think that although this is an election series, the series is also kind of like what Franz was saying, 2021, the, just because the election has happened, I mean, by the time we're posting this, the election has already happened, whether or not we have results is a whole different issue. But um, just because the election has is in the past doesn't mean that foreign policy or predicting what the foreign policy of our country looks like uh, is not top of mind, right? Like we should keep in mind what type of future we want to be building generally as a nation while balancing the pragmatic and idealistic issues that come with that. And I think that I really enjoyed this discussion because I got to hear from Zach, Franz, and Julia about how we think about um, America's role in the world, but also think about what America's future more broadly looks like. Yeah, I think I want to second all of what you guys said. Um, Some important things that I really took away from this discussion was that we all really agreed and disagreed with policies and actions discussed in the both the Trump foreign policy podcast and the Biden foreign policy podcast. And I think because there's so much nuance in these decisions as well. And I think particularly like we saw with our discussion that I really enjoyed on climate change. Um, ultimately, I think polarization and you know demonizing people across the aisle is a real issue that we're facing. And I think it's really important for us to all understand that there's much more nuance in these decisions in foreign policy, particularly than just one side being right, one side being wrong. And I'm really looking forward to seeing and hopefully seeing um, the new administration being able to reach across the aisle um, in 2021 and being able to solve these issues together. With that, I think we're wrapping up our discussion today, guys. Thank you so much. Amanda, Franz, Zach, for your excellent, excellent discussion and excellent points. Hey, if you're still here, you're a brave soul indeed. Thanks so much for sticking around. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Remember to follow us on us on social media at Hopkins POFA, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> All right, cool.